by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. Hi everyone, this is Rev Yearwood. This is episode three of a four-part special series we are doing on trucking, electrification, and transportation justice. Last episode, we were in Kansas City, and in this episode, we are going to Chicago, and we know Chi-Town always has something to say. I encourage you to listen to all four episodes in this series. Every time a package is delivered to our doorsteps, there are impacts, communities are feeling that are truly life and death. We can do better. And I'm so thankful to our guests for sharing with us what the solutions look like. It's on us to use our voices and power to advocate for the solutions these leaders are diligently and brilliantly fighting for. So let's get to it. Well, I'm so excited for this conversation here on The Coolest Show. We are continuing our conversation on transportation, justice, climate justice, environmental justice, all the things regarding justice. And I really have two phenomenal people with me today. Um, first, I want to uh, read the bio for Kim Wasserman. She is the executive director of the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, where she has worked since 1998. Kim joined uh, LVEJO. Is that, is, that, is that Lovejoy? Or how, how do you say that, Kim, actually? Uh, most people call us El Vejo. Say, say it again. El Vejo. El Vejo. Yep, there you go. El Vejo. I love it. El Vejo. I love it. And she has been there at El Vejo as an organizer and helped to organize community leaders to successfully build a new playground, community garden, remodel of a local school park, and force a local polluter to upgrade their facilities to meet current law. As executive director of El Vejo, she has worked organizers to reinstate a job access bus line built upon the community's work to create uh, La, Vil La Velita Park. Is that correct? Am I saying that right there? Kim? La, La, La Vita? La Vita. Mm -hmm. Where is that located? Southwest side of Chicago. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I've been through Chicago quite a bit. I got I to gotta, I gotta come through there and check that park out. Absolutely. <laughs> I, love to have you. Yeah, y'all saved it and, 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 and doing that good work. But she has continued the more than 10-year campaign that won the closure of two local coal-fired power plants and continues to fight for, for the redevelopment of these sites. Kim is chair of the Illinois Commission on Environmental Justice. In 2013, she was the recipient of the Goldman Prize for North America. The biggest accomplishment today is raising three community organizers, age 22, 15, and 12. That's amazing. Well, congratulations on that, on raising those three community organizers there. 
and also on the Goldman Prize and all the Thank work you. you've done over there in Chicago. Definitely, we're so very honored to have you with us today. And also with us, we have Roberto Jesus Clack, and he is the Associate Director of the Warehouse Workers for Justice, WWJ, a workers' center organizing for stable family supporting jobs in Chicagoland's warehouse. Over the past 10 years, Roberto has spent his time organizing veterans, low-income tenants, and workers. He's on the board of the Chicago Jobs with Justice, know that group quite well, the Raise the Floor Alliance, a coalition of worker centers in Chicago, and the Illinois Clean Jobs Coalition. My dear brother Roberto, how are you doing today? I'm good today. You know, we're fighting the good fight, so it's another good day. So thanks so much for having us. No, thank you all for being on the coolest show. I'm actually start with you, Kim. Uh, I actually wanted this, so I kind of read your bio, and clearly there are some amazing things on your bio. Um, but we know as activists that life is much more than just fighting coal fire power plants, <laughs> and much more than fighting for clean water. That's daily, that's 24 seven. But then we also have partners, we have children, <laughs> we have pets, we have this life. And so who is Kimberly Wasserman? Um, I'm a fighter, I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm a mom whose kid, all three children have asthma. I live mm. in a neighborhood with the second worst air quality in Illinois. Um, I know and I recognize structural racism in our society, and I'm not willing to sit by and let it continue, quite honestly. And so I consider myself to be a, come from a line, long line of women who fight for our families and for our community. And historically, as a Chicana, um, I come from a culture and a people that have fought. And so I consider myself a community fighters. We're fighting to change the narrative. We're fighting to change the conditions in which we live in. And we're fighting to make a change at all levels to support our communities and allow for self-determination of our neighborhoods. So I consider myself to be a fighter through and through. Hmm, thank you for that. Now, was your, were, you, were your parents or your parents' parents or your parents' parents' parents also fighters as well? Yes, they were. Um, both my parents are community activists and fighters. My mom was the first... Uh, Latina uh, steel worker in Chicago. Um, and so I come from a long legacy of fighters for um, not just environmental justice, but justice at, at large in our community and in our city and across the world. So, yes. Yeah, well, I kind of figure so. That's usually, that's usually how it goes. You see the, 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 the fruit don't fall too far from the tree. So I, 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 was, I was pretty sure that either was either your immediate parent or someone who raised you was definitely uh, knew how to put the boxing gloves on against those uh, powers to be. So I figured that that was the case because clearly your your resume speaks to that. Yours does too, Roberto. You got that resume like you you got some fighting some fighting uh, lines in you. So who who is Roberto Clack? Uh, I'm the associate director of Warehouse Workers for Justice. I'm a, I'm from the community in which a lot of our uh, work occurs, which is Joliet, Illinois. Um, you know, mid-sized uh, industrial town in the Midwest. You know, people know it for the prison and the Blues Brothers and things like that. But there's also a lot of working class history there and struggle, you know, and the, the labor movement 
uh, and transportation are a big part of what's going on there now. So. No, that's amazing. Well, we want to have a, we want to get into this because I think that there is sometimes a misnomer um, that transportation justice is connected to climate justice. And there's sometimes there's this idea that they are siloed. People know it's important. They understand why it's important. But they're not always clear as to what it is. I think even those of us um, within the other parts of the climate movement. Um, so, you know, Kim, I actually just want to—I just want to get started with you in that in that regard. Um, you know, just for folks to understand, what is transportation justice and mobility justice, and how do they intersect with climate and environmental justice? Absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, I think transportation justice, particularly in our community, speaks to um, wanting to understand and have a voice in how transportation decisions in specific are made in our city. Um, Chicago sees over 30% of all U.S. goods come through its trains and trucks in our city, yet there is no oversight on how many trucks, where those trucks are going, um, and what that means to the infrastructure on the southwest side, south and southwest side of Chicago particularly. And so transportation mm. for us locally means having a voice, having a fight, demanding that the city look at this as a justice issue and not just as an economic advantage or an economic opportunity, but really think about what does it mean when you're promoting transportation, when you're pushing for more logistics in a city, what does that mean to communities that are already overburdened? Um, and when we talk about mobility justice, it's really a reframing on how we look at transportation and mobility. It talks, it, it speaks to not just transportation lines or not just the need for better transportation, but it speaks to centering the whole person and how they access transportation. It speaks to the person's needs, not just making a buck on the revenue of the public transit system, right? And so all of these justice uh, spaces really speak to centering those most marginalized and changing the framework in which decisions are made and which community has a voice in what is happening and how they are impacted by mobility, including transportation. Mm, no, very good. Roberto, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, so we, we come into this space from a, a different perspective, right? We're a labor organization and we fight for workers' rights. And a lot of what we've experienced is, um, you know, the Walmarts of the world and Amazons of the world not treating their workers well especially in the warehouse and transportation space. And uh, Alvejo has a lot to do with us getting into the climate justice world and, you know, agitating us that some of the same actors that don't treat their workers well also don't treat our communities and the environment well, right? And the context is, is transportation's now uh, the largest source of climate change pollution. Um, but it's also transportation and warehousing is also a huge, um, huge force in our economy. Uh, we, we, we work outside of North America's largest inland port in Will County, Illinois, and uh, Joliet and Elwood. 3.5% of the nation's GDP moves in and out of our communities, yet they don't contribute back to giving people good jobs, to paying their fair share of taxes are taking care of the environment. Um, so we've really grown in our knowledge and experience to really incorporate 
climate justice and the need to heal our communities and, and reduce pollution and create a more equitable future uh, while also um, advocating for, for labor rights. You know, and our, our collaboration with the environmental justice community, we feel has made us stronger in being able to fight for workers. How's that going? I mean, I think that one of the things we've been seeing, you know, recently there's been um, in the past, there used to be a much stronger kind of connection between labor and environmental justice um, entities. And we've seen that be strained a little bit. But so hearing you is something like that's actually um, one of the core pillars. Is that, am I accurate to say that? Or, or how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, we... We are completely invested in this at this point. I mean, we still are learning a lot, you know, so uh, we come into this with some humility, but, you know, we're an organization that sees uh, converting transportation to be more sustainable, to be a benefit for the workers. It's a benefit for the community. We believe that communities should have a say uh, on how these projects are done. Uh, As Kim has kind of referred to, like, for the most part, warehousing and logistics development has been done in this Wild West style and in a way where, you know, these entities are so rich and powerful and have billions of dollars that the communities, whether it's Little Village or Joliet, don't have a say and they're not able to shape this and it's not fair and they don't provide good jobs in return for all the tax breaks that we give them. Um, you know, so there are contradictions sometimes. Sometimes we don't completely agree, but there's way more we do agree with. Um, you know, so that's the place where we start. And, you know, we're just we're just looking to to grow and learn and like get more powerful together because these are you know, when we talk about warehousing and logistics companies, Amazon's the first one that comes to mind. But you're talking about Walmart. You're talking about the BNSF Railroad, who's owned by Warren Buffett. You're talking about XPL Logistics, which is a huge company. Um, And the list goes on. So, you know, people who do this work are not just some of the richest corporations and people in the country. They're some of the richest in the world. And that's what we're up against. Um, You know, so to, to really change transportation to be more just, not just to the workers who work in that field, but to the communities and the environment is inherently going to take coalition and collaboration. Um, and we see that as central to what we, you know, what we do and, you know, why the relationships with some of these different groups are so important. Hmm. Now, that's very important. Kim, I see you nodding your head. Do you want to add something into that? Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate Roberto's point. And I think it's important to contextualize, you know, Chicago's the home of labor unions, right? Like this is where unionization started. And I think it's really important to talk about that. And it's a tough conversation to have in a city like Chicago. You know, you get um, the folks, in our case, they demolished a coal power plant, but they're building a 1 million square foot warehouse with trucks, hundreds of trucks that are going to come through. So the construction workers came out and they're like, yeah, we support this project. And when we engage with them, we're like, look, we understand that demolishing the warehouse and building, demolishing the coal power plant and building a warehouse gets you a job. But what happens after that? What about the workers who are going to be in this warehouse? Who's standing up for them? Right. And so there's really a, there's, there has been a long time a disconnect between the environmental justice movement in Chicago and the labor movement. And I really applaud Warehouse Workers for Justice. Um, and um, the, uh, the groups that we're working with who are stepping up to be like, look, we recognize this gap and we want to try to figure it out because we're both fighting the same fight in the sense of fighting for our rights, 
from these companies. And so we're really pushing the envelope here in Chicago and looking to engage with truck drivers and looking to engage with Teamsters and looking to engage with the actual workers on the ground because we are, again, we're not in this fight alone and they're screwing us both over. And so how are we engaging with the city to really pull back the curtain on who needs to be in these conversations and who needs to be protected and who needs to be offered the benefit besides just the construction unions that have historically always been in that position of power? No, I applaud you both for that. That's very important. And I just want to say that, you know, as I've talked to other folks within this, in this space, it's interesting um, because um, we're seeing more and more, particularly um, those within, those actually drivers, truck drivers, those within, um, those within the warehouses, those who are um, on those front lines within the companies, but also within the communities who are right around these entities, we're beginning to see a link because they're beginning to see sometimes the toxins, the diesel fuel, um, you know, they're beginning to say, hey, I'm getting sick, you're getting sick, you know, you're getting sick, I'm getting sick. So they begin to, to kind of connect the dots there. And then they realize that the guy, you know, who's going home to the, to the Hampton, so to speak, that person's not getting sick. And so we're like, well, hold on, we're doing all the work, we're living next to you, um, you know, we're, and, but we're the ones who are not benefiting um, from, you know, their greed. So just take a step back, actually. So Kim, actually, so when I think of Chicago, um, you mentioned it kind of earlier. I think of other cities that like um, on the ports. I think of LA and Long Beach and um, Newark and Baltimore and those kind of places. And then recently I had some the good folks at Kansas City who schooled me and gave me a good education about, you know, hey, a lot of these trucks and warehouses kind of come through the middle of the country. So for those who are listening and, and, and they also you know Chicago is this, it is a major city. But you kind of said it's more of a place where its production is happening as well. So explain how transportation justice and Chicago connect for those who, anyone, who can't see those things. Connected. Absolutely. You know, it's important to understand how how goods get to us. And I think Roberto and Warehouse Workers for Justice really illuminated us as environmental justice organizers to understand, particularly in Chicago, the history of good movement trading and the history of where we stand. And so I really want to give them credit for researching that and really holding strong to like the history of trade all the way before Chicago was even colonized, right? And thinking through um, who was here first and how did they use the, the landscape, the topography to be able to move goods for their people. And so Chicago plays a very important role in given that we're in the middle of the country. So when something comes from China, right, it gets put on a barge, it gets put on a boat, it comes to the port of Los Angeles. From Los Angeles, it's coming up to Joliet where Warehouse Workers for Justice is, right? And now that we are in an age of e-commerce, and now particularly that we're in a pandemic, folks are looking to e-commerce. Folks are looking to purchase more online. And what we know pre-pandemic is that folks who were purchasing online were primarily white affluent communities. But where do you find the warehouses and the trucks for those goods? In primarily black and brown communities, right? So already before COVID, we were seeing um, how Affluent folks were purchasing more, but our communities were paying the price for that more purchasing. And with COVID, that's just increased even more, right? And so Chicago in particular, now that these goods are coming into Joliet, Chicago needs to figure out, wait a minute, Joliet is still 45 minutes away. With traffic, that's at least two hours away. Goods need to get into Chicago faster. So neighborhoods like ours that are right up the highway, right, that are right off the exit of the Stevenson, in this case, I-55, 
make perfect locations because we're right at the edge of the city. We're right before the suburbs. We're right at the edge of the city. And you can get to pretty much any neighborhood from the southwest side fairly easily. So neighborhoods like ours start to become ideal for the last mile of logistics. What's the last mile that these goods have to go through? And then you can get these little trucks to then drop them off all over the neighborhoods. And so it's important to understand we don't have a port authority here. We don't even have a port. Right. Like we have a little port on the south side, but there is no entity that's keeping track of how many trucks are coming. There's no entity telling us how many trucks are on our roads. And in fact, we had a fight as an organization to get the city to do a truck study on the southwest side because they had done you're proving warehouse after warehouse after warehouse on the south and southwest. The infrastructure, right? Like jobs are crap. And so you, you can't continue to do this and not understand how you're impacting our communities. And so we're really proud to work with Warehouse Workers of Justice and others to make these demands and start to push this conversation of Chicago plays a major role in transportation. We need to be looking at this more, uh, more from a health and equity lens, because best believe Chicago's looking to bank on more warehouses. They see this as a cash cow. They're like, you want to build in Chicago? Come on through. Let's talk. I'll give you whatever property you want. And people are saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We got trucks everywhere on the South side. Like, when does it stop? When is enough? When is it too much? And the city, unfortunately, because they claim to be broke, right? They're like, no, 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 we need this. And so we are in the fight of our lives right now in Chicago to actually talk about how important are we as a city in transportation, but how do we best protect the people who currently live here um, and are saying, we good on trucks, we do not need anymore in our neighborhoods. And that really pushes the conversation outside of just transportation. It pushes it, pushes it to consumerism. It pushes it to how much do people actually need to buy and how often, right? And it really starts to talk about capitalism at its finest, quite honestly. And so these are tough conversations, but they have to be had because we need to talk about what is really at stake here. And it's not just the cash cow warehouses. It's not just good jobs. It's about our environment in, in, in its totality, quite honestly. Mm. Bertha, I see you shaking your head there, like you just write an agreement with Kim. Yeah, I mean, so Chicago is also the, the one place in the country where six out of the seven class one railroads um, come here. So it's, we've always, historically, we've always been the hub for rail in the entire country. We've always moved um, a huge amount of goods for the rest of the country. We're, we're, we're a day's drive from 60% of the uh, continent. So, you know, like if you really wanted to, you could drive from Chicago to Florida in a day or Chicago to New York City in a day. You know, so the, the central location that we're in um, is really informed. Um, you know, this, this industry, it's always been here. Uh, a lot of it's moved out to the suburbs, especially in the last um, 20 years. Um, a lot. And like, like we've also, we don't manufacture as much as a country anymore, right? So a lot of things we have to to move from one part of the world to the next, right? And like one of the strategic places to do that is right here, both in both in the city and in the suburbs. The so um, the the largest inland port in the country got built in 2002 on the old Joliet Arsenal. Though Arsenal's where we build uh, much of our munitions for the the World War II and Vietnam War. Uh, that got decommissioned, and they built this huge um, train yard in the beginning of this century. And where where we're at, there's there might be 500 warehouses at this point, and it's half the Fortune 500 companies um, that have warehouses 
uh, where we're at. And Will County is the, it's the fastest job growth region um, in the state. So like, it's been a huge um, source of jobs, which is part of the tension is people need jobs, right? You know, but like, what kind of jobs are they actually really uh, producing? You know, a lot of these jobs employed through um, staffing agencies. We have 99 uh, in Will County, but there's hundreds of in Chicago and like people don't even get permanent employment. So, you know, what kind of economic development are we really getting? If you drive down the main street in Joliet on Jefferson street, you see a lot of empty storefronts. Um, you know, so the people that are benefiting from this are, you know, the big retailers, but it's not really trickling down to the rest of the community, despite what people may say. Wow, that's important. Thank you both for that. That's that's good. That's real talk. That's real talk. Um, you know, so for me in hip hop, one of the things interesting is that you know, hip hop as a culture was created. I don't know if you knew this. So I'm gonna get a little. This you probably y'all probably y'all probably know this, but this for those who are listening, they may not know. But hip hop was created because of transportation justice and the racist planning, urban planning of highways, when the Bronx Causeway was created um, back, in, back, back in the 60s. Uh, Robert Moses, then you know, the highway baron, so to speak, placed the highway that divided the Bronx and then created redlining, and it, it then put those highways in the community. And then the music, but hip hop started because people wanted to talk about it, you know, what was going on, you know, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. <laughs> and so, so, you know, and they would be out there, you know, saying all these things uh, in that regard. But the thing here is that as you're talking, it seems like that same type of racism was also happening in Chicago. Like it wasn't just New York. But it seems like, like pipelines and many and many other environmental hazards, highways were placed on the path of least resistance, aka black and brown and indigenous and poor neighborhoods. So I guess from as you're talking, and I'm and I guess kind of connect that for me. How does routing highways connect to urban planning? And maybe for folks who don't know, what is the racist history in that in Chicago? Kim. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Um, and I agree with you. I, I think of a lot, the common song in which he talks about, Escucha la ciudad respirando, which is listen to the city breathing. Um, and I always think about lungs when I think about that common song and what that means for Chicago. Um, and you're right, um, you know, the Stevenson Expressway and particularly the Eisenhower Expressway going straight west, where the Eisenhower at least was, was displaced an entire African-American community to make room for this highway. Since then, the green line stops have been taken out, right? Like folks don't have access to public transportation, right? And these are the same communities then that are not only, as you mentioned, redlined and highways got through them, then they're economically disenfranchised, right? There's no programming and support systems for these, for these communities to access public transit, to be able to get jobs to be able to come out of poverty. Then you start to see closure of schools. Then you start to see closure, uh, getting rid of public housing, right? So little by little, these communities continue to be disenfranchised. And it's not by chance that these communities then are targeted for industry and for warehousing, right? Because they're already in blight, 
right? Folks are not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, right? And they can't, this is the only way we can help folks in poverty is to bring in these industries that are going to give you a job and don't ask questions why, don't ask questions about economic justice, just be thankful that you're at least getting this job, right? Whether or not it gets you out of poverty isn't the point. Whether or not it kills you isn't the point. The point is we are at least giving you something, Mm. right? And so the communities, particularly in Chicago, that are currently being targeted for warehouses are poor black and brown communities are poor communities that have had all of those things happen to them. And so it really puts us in a position to have to come into communities a lot of time or work with communities to have a dialogue that it's not jobs versus the environment. It's it's about what kind of jobs do we want to help the environment and to do our part, right? Fact is, is most communities of color, low income are the least giving to climate change. It's these 60 corporations that are the largest that are contributing the most to climate change. So let's start to talk about it from that perspective, right? What does it mean to have a dignified job? What does it mean to have justice in your job? And, And again, in a city like Chicago, it breaks my heart that the conversations we're having, it's like, yes, you deserve health insurance. Yes, you deserve to have a salary. Yes, you deserve not to work at a temp agency, right? And how do we come back to these conversations of what does it mean to have justice in my job? What does it mean to not just take any job and continue to be in poverty, but to actually have the opportunity to build wealth and provide for my family? And so, you know, those histories are completely intersected because what are they all based off of? Structural racism, right? So at the end of the day, if you're truly looking to the root cause of why these things happen, you find structural racism at the heart of it. And so it's important for us to make those links and ensure that these powers are not dividing us, but that we're understanding the analysis and that we can break it down. And you can't divide us because our work is interconnected. It's intergenerational. It's inner, um, it's, it's, it's across movements. And we recognize that analysis and can come back that much harder. But fact is, is they are all intertwined. I know that's right. Come on now. Talk, say that, say that stuff, Kim. Come on now. Break it down. Like, and, and in that, so let's go, let's keep it moving on, on the highways front. So Roberto, Let's get to right to what goes on these highways, because I know that we're dealing with the trucks and the electrifying of the trucking component here. And so maybe you can explain where's the fight, electrifying trucking. And I would really want to know from you, obviously, what does it entail? You know, how long have you been, you know, if you've been advocating for it for how long? But also from yesterday, Roberto, you know, we've had this conversation that many folks who are in interpretation justice want people to know, and, you, and, and for you too, Kim, to explain what is electrifying trucking, but also what's the difference between electrifying trucking and automated trucking? Because there's a huge difference between those two. One is actually a job killer, and people are afraid of what they could do for their community. So, Roberto, what are your thoughts on electrifying trucking and that process, and from, from as a laborer and from that standpoint, automated trucking? Well, you know, I think we got to look at who we're dealing with, right? Um, you know, and we're looking at people who um, are involved with logistics and warehousing are some of the richest uh, corporations in the entire world. Um, so when we talk about electrification, we're talking about the people who have the most means to do it, right? And I think we can't lose that point is that we need to hold accountable uh, these corporations, these massive corporations to invest in sustainable, um, you know, sustainable uh, transportation, sustainable trucks, you know, and that's, it's got to happen and it's got to be in a just way. 
Um, you know, a lot of the lowest labor standards exist within some of the trucking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, there's these drayage truckers. So that, that's, you know, someone who goes from a port, the port, one of the intermodal train yards uh, is our version of a port in the Midwest to the warehouse, and they just go back and forth all day. Well, a lot of times those are independent contractors, right? And they get paid per load. They get paid piecemeal. Um, and, you know, so they, they are just really struggling to get by. You know, instead of putting the pressure on them to be responsible for electrifying these fleets, we need to put the pressure on Amazon and BNSF and all these big corporations who – can afford it, frankly. So, you know, that's kind of the angle we're coming at um, is that, you know, whether there should be more of this industry or not, that's definitely uh, up for debate. But, you know, the industry that's here now, we need to definitely uh, hold accountable, um, you know, to make the investment in this kind of um, transportation. And, you know, there's there's sort of a larger question that this, you know, um, this conjures is, like, should we have a whole supply chain that exists within, um, you know, a worldwide sort of uh, way? Or should we have a more localized economy? Uh, and I know this is probably like something Alvejo's thought about more than us, right? It's like, should we, like, you know, move food from all around um, the country? Or should we grow it in our own community? And I think, you know... These are some of the things, you know, these are some of the questions. We, we, we don't have the answers for that. We haven't thought of that as much. But, you know, I think, you know, should, should the system exist in the way that it does, right? You know, and I think that we do ask, ask some of those questions with, with this debate. Well, I see Kim leaned in. She leaned all the way in on that one, boy. She got right up on it. So I, I know she went to bring some fire because she leaned in. Kim, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think you ask a really good question. And, you know, we've we've gone as far as electrification um, with that with the with the new million square foot warehouse that's coming. It's going to be the largest in Chicago. And from jump, even half the community, a lot of the communities against it. But folks are like, look, if you're going to come, can you at least come with electric? And it really spawned a conversation for us locally that we've connected with folks uh, nationally with. And it really begs the question of does electrification solve the problem? Um, across a couple of fronts. Number one, you still need a battery. You still need to dig for resources for that battery, lithium, right? And so there's still the conversation around the extraction of resources from, from the earth, right? And is this really a clean source or is this still a fossil fuel given that you need resources? The second question it begs also, and how do we stand in solidarity internationally with other communities that are dealing with their resources being taken to be able to get the battery, uh, the, the minerals needed to create the batteries? So I think there's an international question around solidarity um, for, the, for the chain of supplies for electric vehicles, number one. Number two, the question still remains around, even if you electrify all the vehicles, we still have hundreds of thousands of trucks on our street. People are still being killed pedestrians still are not safe. Our infrastructure most definitely in Chicago cannot handle that. And so the question really begs, a diff- begs to say, yes, electrification is great, but how do we talk about the mitigation of harms? How do we talk about when is too many trucks enough for a neighborhood? 
right? And so we we don't want to get lost in the techno fixes of saying, well, electrification will fix everything. Chicago has a plan to electrify all the trucks in 10 years. And that's great. But what happens in those 10 years? Our neighborhood still has a second worst air quality. We still have hundreds of diesel trucks coming through our neighborhood. And most of the truck drivers who are our family members are independent contractors who are getting screwed. So like, let's have a conversation. 10 years is great, but let's have a conversation about what's happening today, and how we're going to get to those 10 years in a just manner that includes not just who's banking on electrification, but the actual truck drivers and the community members who have to have these trucks come bear upon their community. And so it's really important for us to not just think that electrification is the only answer, because then it leads to questions like automation, right? And we're seeing trains in the Midwest that no longer have drivers, right? You got drones driving these trains potentially coming through our communities. What does that say for the safety of trucks too? And so our concern is, is that, yes, let's talk about electrification, but censoring, once again, those most impacted, including the truck drivers, the workers, and the communities who bear the brunt for having trucks in their neighborhood. Let's censor the communities where this battery needs need to come from. And let's have a conversation to Roberto's point. What are we transferring? And what are, what are we transferring from hundreds of miles away? But can we get them sourced locally instead? And that's really the conversation, the more robust conversation that we're looking to have locally when it comes to electrification. We don't want to get sold out by these big greens who are like, yes, let's put up battery chargers everywhere and, and fuck the truck count. No, we want to have a conversation of how does electrification center our communities and our workers first and foremost, before you come in here talking about everybody needs an electric truck and electric charging. Wow, Kim, that's powerful. Um, I, I want to follow up to you on on that. Um, do you do you do truck counting in Chicago? Do y'all do that as well? <laughs> we sure do. We had to because the city had no idea how many trucks were coming through our neighborhood. When we said, "Yo, how many trucks are currently coming through our neighborhood?" Nobody could answer that question, and we were like, "But you're making decisions every day that allows more trucks in our neighborhood." And so. We work with our local high school, our advanced placement statistics class. And for the last four years, they have been doing statistically things, counting trucks and giving us Love reports it. at the end of every school year, presenting to the community, here's how many trucks are in our neighborhood. And so the city uh, eventually uh, ended up doing this study because they were getting out done by juniors and seniors at our local high school who were out researching them, as they should, most, most definitely. Um, but... And just to give you a sense of like the sad state of affairs of how Chicago politicians and decision makers are making decisions for our community without facts, without numbers, without a true understanding of what is happening in our communities. And so we empower ourselves to be community scientists and get to the bottom of those questions before they do if needed. No, that's, I love, I love all that. that that's fantastic. Roberto, so let's, let's kind of pivot here slightly. The, the temp employment system makes it hard to enforce labor rights. Employers are increasingly cutting costs by contracting out large portions of their workforce. This means that workers have no job security or safety protection, receive low wages, and receive almost no benefits. So what is Warehouse Workers for Justice doing to hold employers accountable? Yeah, definitely. You know, and this is, um, you know, there's a lot of labor organizations who've kind of taken on the contracting out and it's a, it's, it's an entrenched, uh, and it's a very difficult problem to deal with. So we're organizing at the Mars warehouse in Joliet right now. And the Mars family is the third richest in the world. 
Um, some people don't know that, uh, the candy giant, so M&M, Milky Way, and things like that. But within that warehouse, there's two different third-party logistics companies uh, um, that exist. And um, for one of the third-party logistics companies, six staffing agencies um, exist uh, that they contract out with. So that's eight different employers, and this is just one warehouse. So it makes it really difficult, especially for unions to do organizing drives there. So we're, we're a worker center and we exist as a way for workers to still come together and hold their um, bosses accountable. So we've been campaigning against Mars uh, for better COVID safety, um, to do right by their workers, for hazard pay, for quarantine pay. Um, and really, we still organize workers to stand up in the workplace because ultimately what it's going to take to change an industry is workers coming together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's really, really our goal. And that's across all these like subcontractor lines. We're going to have to, we're going to have to get people together to really hold these, um, these corporations accountable because even though they, they evade responsibility, it's Mars who's responsible for that situation. They're the ones who completely dictate the terms. It's not the staffing agencies or the third-party logistics companies. They have a role in it, but it's the people who move the product or whose product it is um, that are responsible. So really acknowledging that and then working in coalition with people to hold them accountable. So it, this is a tough fight. You know, I'm not going to say it's not. Um, you know, but I believe that we can, you know, make a difference and we can really win uh, a labor movement that can stand up to these, you know, riches of the rich corporations that have these businesses. Let me ask you about to follow up to that. What are your thoughts on this fight for you in with the backdrop of the pandemic? Because the pandemic I mean, so has changed so much. You know, we're in the we're in the second surge right now, and I, I just got to say, um, you know, I'm I'm tired today. Um, it's it's been really hard for uh, for the workers, and we're we're getting complaints across the board um, of of infections. We had an we had a war, warehouse. I won't say which it is because we have a campaign, but we had one warehouse where we got 40 infections in one week and a death. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that's um, happening right now. And um, the Illinois Department of Public Health um, really releases statistic and manufacturing and warehousing uh, is, is the worst uh, place to be outside of a long-term care facility. Um, so warehouse workers have paid a, a huge price um, during this pandemic to make sure we have food on our table, to make sure that we're getting these goods. But what COVID, what COVID's bringing forward is that this workforce is completely essential for our society's function, but also that this workforce, even though they play this hugely important role in our economy, um, has really been taken advantage of. COVID's just bringing to the forefront something that you know, existed long before this, that warehouse workers aren't getting the justice they deserve. They're not getting the pay they deserve. Um, they're not getting the stability that they deserve. They're not getting the, the retirement plan, even though we know that the people who run these corporations can afford it. You know, so I think the pandemic, um, it's been really hard. 
Um, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's been really, really difficult for the warehouse workers, you know, but what we hope is that we can build a movement, um, you know, that really, um, you know, fights for something different afterwards. And, you know, the warehouse workers have suffered a lot uh, and sacrificed a lot. They need to get this vaccine. Uh, they need to be at the front of the line for the vaccine. Um, and that includes all the layers of subcontracting. We can't forget about the people who work at the temp agencies who are often Latinos uh, with um, certain immigration statuses and uh, black workers who've had experiences with the criminal justice system and have backgrounds. You know, that's who gets stuck at the staffing agencies. You know, and I think that's also some very important to uh, highlight that when we're talking about improving uh, warehouse workers' rights, we're often talking about black and brown workers. You know, and I think that's very important to, to mention. No, thank you. And, you know, really my thoughts are with the warehouse workers you talk about, I can hear it in your voice. It's the pain and, you know, it's real. People are dying. And this is what people understand that this is not about just about an income, it's about existence, right? People are literally, are literally dying. They put themselves, they put us on the front lines to feed their families, and that, and people should be mindful of that. And on top of that, they're being zipped and cheated, and 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 you know all those kind of things. I definitely, I definitely feel you. I got a funny warehouse story, but I, I want to tell you real quick. <laughs> it connects. I was when I was in, when I was a, a young a young lad. And I, I had to work in a in a warehouse, um, to, and the, and they were at the time. I just try to remember this. This the Audubon had Audubon Society had calendars, right? They're birds, and so uh, we were, we were packing those little. They they were doing their fundraising. So I didn't know much about that much really about climate justice or climate change. And so I was in the warehouse. Everybody else, and. Uh, but I love the birds. I mean, I love these little, it was, there was nice calendars. They were sent to their funders. And we went, we was this black and brown folk in the, in the warehouse packing these calendars. We went there, man, midnight to eight in the morning, packing those calendars. So, uh, but when I was getting, at the end of the process, I was like, they was like, they had a couple of damaged calendars. And I said, man, I'm going to take up these damaged. They said, can I have some of these damaged calendars? I said, go ahead and take them down. You like them, like them birds? I took a couple of Damon's calendars. And so years later, Audubon brought me back to Keynote, one of their events. So I had to let them know. I says, I was a little black guy in a warehouse packing y'all's calendars. <laughs> Didn't know nothing about climate change, but I like them birds. And I told them, and I said, I got, I got a confession to make. I think I stole two of y'all calendars. <laughs> <laughs> I hope y'all understand. I hope, I don't know what kind of fundraising y'all was doing, but I took I enjoyed those calendars. Oh man, and it was the funniest moment because it shows again how our people are literally doing this work, while folks, even in our movements, are using the warehouse, using these things to benefit themselves, and not even understanding how it all. Connect. So I, I was. I, I so I to say I was the warehouse worker for many. For and I understand how hard that work is. How hard it is on your body. How hard it is on the time you have to work. No, no um, health care. So you know, if you're talking about the COVID, 
that means a lot. You know something that came, I mean, I'm talking about COVID. I was blown away, actually, by the fact that this past um, April, um, you know, I know that many of the community members begged the city not to allow smokestack demolition um, April of this year, right in the middle, right back in the middle of the COVID um, uh, virus situation and the pandemic. But the demolition took place, sending a dust cloud over Little Village. Now, after over seven months, the Illinois Attorney General has settled a lawsuit against Hillco, the developer, and its contractor to pay $370,000 to a Little Village wellness organization working to address asthma team members. My question to you is that, is this settlement, settlement enough to address the damage in health? No, it is not. Nope, $370,000 does nothing to protect our neighborhood. And just to give you an understanding, you know, this is really, again, based on the fact that, particularly in Chicago, like many metropolitan cities, the, black and, the, the lives and bodies of Black and brown people are not of value, right? And it's particularly in Chicago, where a city where we're seeing police reforms in other cities, you're not seeing it here, right? You're seeing environmental justice reforms in other cities, you're not seeing it here. So we have a serious uh, crisis on our hands here in Chicago, where we do not want to acknowledge that we do not put value to black and brown lives. And that demolition and this $370,000 chump change that they got from Hilco, get, all that does is exacerbate and let us know as black and brown people that they do not care about us. Because the fact of the matter is, is it to your point, two city commissioners signed off on the permit for an implosion in the middle of a pandemic, two, and neither one of them was held accountable, right? The company let out this dust, this dust cloud there was no air monitoring for two days after just for us to understand what we were breathing in and how were we impacted. Hilco was able to come in and give car washes and do street cleaning. People had, the people doing the car washes had no clue what was in the dust. What were they washing off? Did it make it worse putting water on it? Did it make it worse touching it with your hands? To this day, we don't know what was in the dust cloud. To this day, we don't know how our soil was impacted. We do know our water infrastructure was impacted and we're working to get that fixed, but we had to go out and give out free water to people because the city wasn't pay, wasn't was not acknowledging the impacts. And so, as an organization, we've spent more than three hundred and seventy thousand dollars against Hilco and what has come since that April eleventh demolition. And so, no, this continues to be a slap in the face and holding up industries like Hilco to say, no, you all are more important than the people that live in this community. And the sad fact is, is that Hilco not only lost a, a local worker, we lost, a, a family lost their dad. A woman lost her husband as part of the demolition. They were shut down a week and there has been no answers to our community as to what happened to that man and how the site was safer afterwards. The day after the implosion, we lost a senior in our community who had COPD. Right. And there has never been any accountability to the loss of that gentleman. So we've lost two lives so far because of this, because of this development. And there is, this is, this is what the Hilco has to walk away. And, and they also don't get to acknowledge guilt, right? They don't get to say, they're not forced to say, yes, this was our fault. They're not forced to actually take accountability for what they've done in our neighborhood. And the sad reality is though, is that the city, because it's cash strapped, continues to allow companies like this to go ahead and come in and negate the fact that we are a people, the gate, the fact that we are a community and deserve to be respected, right? We got less than 24 hours notice on that implosion, less than 24 hours notice of an implosion during a pandemic. 
You know what I mean? What does that tell you about how we, where we land as a community, right? And this is why we fight because I'll be damned if our neighborhood doesn't fight for a right to be able to live and breathe safely in our city, right? And so I think this is, this is why we fight, Roberto, and, and all of us fight in this city is because of shit like this, quite honestly, because it's a slap in the face. Like this doesn't, this doesn't build confidence in our administration in this city. This doesn't tell us that our lives are worth any. This just tells us that Hilco can do whatever the hell they want. That's what that tells us. And the sad fact is, is leaders in our community are supporting Hilco to this day, right? And again, they're, they're behind this false narrative of jobs. And it's a damn shame that people are willing to put this type of company with this type of negligence over the people of our neighborhood, quite honestly. Mm. Well, this time always goes so fast. And I just, I'm always just crazy how the coolest show this mood is so much conversation, but I want to make sure this last little bit that y'all, because the great thing about it is that we have a great, we've developed a nice little large audience across the country. And we've had some, you know, we got a lot of, lot of folks in some high places and in all parts of the movement listening and checking this out. So I want to give this to you. I want to make sure you have this time to really, you know, say, because I don't want to miss. Was, I had a, a whole long list of questions and you know, we, we got to some of them and we didn't get to some, but I want to make sure you get out what you need to get out. So I just want to make sure you know what fights can the rest of this country fight that will be crucial for your communities and your fight. Should the issue be fought, federal policy, state, local policy, government agencies, courts, however you think it should be done. But what are those fights? And ideally, what changes would occur if you were able to win those fights? So what fights um, should the rest of the country be paying attention to um, that you're working on right now that you say, hey, okay, cool, got the coolest show, use this platform. You got it right now. But also, how should the fight be fought? In other words, federal, state, local, government, courts. And then what changes? So, Roberto, I'll start with you. So definitely, um, you know, one of our big concerns um, right now is that, I mean, there's good news on the vaccine front. Um, is that going to be rolled out in a equitable way? Uh, one where we really try to ensure that essential workers, especially black and brown workers and temp workers are going to get the access that they deserve. So that's something that's going to be pretty central to what we work on. Um, right now is making sure that, you know, they're first in line um, and that we really, you know, are saving some lives in the warehouses. I mean, so that's, that's going to be a critical priority. And, you know, I would say that's both a national and local um, fight, like the health departments and local health departments like Cook County and Will County, they're making their plans for how they're rolling this out now as we speak. So, you know, I just think we need to be communicating with them now we need to be communicating with the federal government um, on that. So I just think, you know, how this is going to happen is going to be really critical. And I can, you know, what I don't want to see happen is that the most marginalized workers who sacrifice this whole time get, get left behind. Mm -hmm. um, so that's definitely something we want to put out there uh, and get people to really think about because it's happening now. Um, you know, and so that's, that's one thing. And, you know, I'll just say like, we're going to have to figure out for the climate movement, we're going to have to figure out transportation. Um, you know, it's the role, the transportation and warehousing and logistics are growing. 
you know, we're out of time and, you know, whatever it is we have to do, we have to take on transportation if we want to fight climate change. You know, the, 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 the disasters are getting worse. I mean, we were here in November and it felt great, but it was 70 degrees for a week. And Kim and I like grew up here and that ain't normal, you know, and it's, we're, you know, we're out of time and transportation is the biggest polluter in the state. It's the biggest in the nation and it's looking to grow um, with the, the way that these economies are growing and we're housing and logistics. So we have to figure out a plan to really remediate that and, you know, really deal with the, the harm transportation is doing to not only our communities, uh, but also the environment. Hmm. Very well said. Kimberly? Yeah, thank you for the question. And so I, I'll start with ways folks can support. So the Hillco project is moving forward and we know that Target is going to be the leaser of the warehouse. And so we're calling on folks to, we're calling on folks to support us and demanding that Target not lease the warehouse and cancel their, their lease on the warehouse. Um, our community has put forth what we call a just transition plan. How do you transition from an extractive economy to an inclusive economy? And for us, that's a food economy. And so we envisioned using that site for food production and large scale indoor growing. And that's something that our neighborhoods still would like to see. So um, we're going to continue to fight and ask fo folks to join us in demanding the target cancel their lease and not uh, lease the warehouse as planned. Um, so anybody who has connections or wants to reach out to target, please let us know. You can visit our website um, and find out how to support um, I think with the new administration coming in, there's already a lot of talk around how to support environmental justice from the Biden administration. And I think what we want to make sure of is that compared to the Bezos fund, that this money actually go to EJ communities and not big greens. Um, and so how do we ensure that environmental justice, climate justice communities are actually able to access the resources coming from the federal government? And then secondly, as somebody from Chicago, um, please support us in not hiring Rahm Emanuel on the, on the team or Mayor, Mayor Lightfoot, like not for nothing, but as two Chicagoans, um, not good. Um, just because you meet some boxes does not make you a good person. So please do not, please support us in asking that neither of those two people please be in this administration. Um, and then lastly, what I would say is what we're looking for in Chicago is environmental justice reforms. Um, there has to be a different way of doing planning in Chicago. There has to be a different way of looking at urban planning and development. And we can no longer continue to bank on cash cows that sacrifice our community. We need to be investing in our local economy, our local community, a circular economy, and an economy that isn't extractive but is inclusive of our community. Just like we're asking for... Um, the end of policing, this is what we're asking for. And some people may think that's too extreme, but that's what it means to center community and to center their voices is to understand what folks are demanding and support it and not trying to change it or edit it down to be culturally or, or politically appropriate. Um, these are big demands because we're envisioning our future differently. We look out for each other. Um, and that's what this is about, is how do we rely on each other and not continue to rely on a capitalistic system um, that will um, use us um, to its benefit just to make money. Um, so I think for me, those are the things that I would, I would mention. No, thank you both on that. I have two more quick ones. So Roberto, if folks want to find you, how can they get in contact with you and the organization and the, and the union? It's uh, www.4j.org, our, our website. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter. We're House Workers for Justice. Um, you know, we're out there, you know, we're trying to fight the good fight and definitely warehouse workers, especially hit us up. So, you know, we're always looking to uh, get workers organized and fighting back. No doubt. And you, Kim, how can folks get in contact with you? 
Absolutely. Uh, you can find us at lvejo.org. Um, and same acronym um, that you can find us on Twitter and Facebook um, and all the social media spaces. So please feel free to hit us up. Um, we offer virtual toxic tours. And we offer these very lovely posters that say, hell no to Hilco. Uh, that if people want to put up in their windows, they can reach out to us and we'll mail you one and please support our fight. I love it. I love it. This is my last question. This is a, this, this wasn't on your, this wasn't on your cheat sheet. So this, 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 this one is going to come at you here. So you got to get ready. You don't know where it's going to come from. So I'm talking with you, Roberto. Here it comes. When you get ready to go out there and fight, man, it's about to go down. I mean, you about to, you know, it's like, man, it's like, and it's, it ain't, it ain't warm like it is now. It's like, Usual cold Chicago windy weather. It's it's you gotta get out there and stand out, stand outside and fight that good fight. What music do you put on to get you pumped up? Oh man, I mean, I like the I like the radical hip hop. So Lil Dead Prez, the Coup. I mean, <laughs> that's all my jam right there. So. All yeah. right, yeah, I like that. Okay, that that'll get you going. That'll get you get you ready to get out there. That'll definitely get you going. So. All right, all right, Kim. So, what, what is it? What, what you listening to, Kim? Do you let me know what what music or is there a poem? Is there? I mean, what what do you what do you do to? Now you a fighter. Now you you a fighter from fighters. So I know you got a whole routine. I know you got a whole like thing. You might you might you know I got you probably got a whole like Rocky thing going on. So what you what, what do you turn on? <laughs> Same boat, same boat as Roberto. Definitely the coupe, but I'm also a Chicago girl, so I listen to a lot of Common. Um, okay. I like T Black Star, uh, Mos Def, Taleb Kualib, um, and just really censoring myself in um, hip hop culture and roots. I'm, I'm, you know, I was born in '76. I graduated '94. Um, at the heart, you know, I still have my Cypress Hill cassettes. So for me, it's really about bringing it back to um, hip hop, the struggle, how we use music, art and our voices um, to fight. Um, and so for me, it's really about grounding myself same in, in, the, in the roots of hip hop um, and in the roots of our culture um, to prepare. Because these, these, these fights are hard and this cold ain't no joke. Um, so best believe that we got to both bundle up mentally and physically uh, to be out there fighting the good fight. Um, and so, you know, you, you got to do that with um, some champurrado, some hot chocolate, some Mexican hot chocolate, and some good hip hop to get you going. Oh man, thank y'all so much. And those are our guests today. That is Roberto Clack, Associate Director of Warehouse Workers for Justice, WWJ, and Kimberly Washington, Executive Director of the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you all so much. That was, that was phenomenal. That was great. Thank you guys so much. That was, that was an amazing episode. Um, and before you guys go, I just want to ask you if you could do a drop for us. So just say your name, your title, and you're on the coolest show. So just like my name is, and I am, um, the, and I'm on the coolest show. Uh, Roberto, you can go first. My name is Roberto Clack, Warehouse Workers for Justice, and I'm here on the coolest show. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Kim Wasserman. I'm from the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, and I am on the coolest show in the world. <laughs> All right, great. Thank you all so much. If you all need anything for Hip Hop Caucus, you know, please, you know, you know, please reach out to us. You know, we, we got a few fighters here, I think, that can support and let's, let's stay in contact. I mean, I think TC is one way, but let's definitely stay in contact. If you need anything from us, just, just please shout. 
Thank Thanks you so, so much, much for the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And it was Thank lovely you. to meet you in person. Thank you. <laughs> no, definitely. <laughs> All right, y'all. Have a good one. Be safe. All right. Thanks. Thanks, you. You too. Take care. Bye bye. All right, Rev, you want to do the. uh, I think think you got it, right? Okay, cool. We're good. Yeah, I think we're good. Good job. Good job. Yeah, yeah. That was, you know, a little shorter because less people. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.